You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, good morning. If this is your first time back, would you just wave at me? First time you've been back to church for months? Would you just give me a wave? All right, I see a few of you. This is the first time in the last several weeks been back? Give me a wave. Okay, if you plan on staying awake for 90% of this message, go ahead and just give me a wave. <laughs> all right, all right, praise the Lord. Well, it's good to see week by week more and more folks showing up. By the way, we're wearing the mask, as mentioned earlier, as we move. We're staying socially distanced. In my awareness, not one single case have we spread, and we've been meeting since around the 17th of May. So it's really good to see people and encourage one another. If you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to remain open to the book of Revelation. When you see Jake, that's who read that a moment ago, say, Jake, you did a fantastic job, but no Bible has the book of Revelations, plural. It does have the book of Revelation, singular. So give him a hard time on behalf of the pastor, if you will. Today we continue, actually conclude a series on worship. My prayer and hope is that this series has been helpful to you in deepening the practice of worship. We conclude today by looking at the power of worship in the future. What we just heard read a moment ago is a powerful and poetic future passage that speaks to us. And today we look at the book of Revelation. It is a book of wonder. It's a book of worship. It's a book that we should not be afraid of. It is a book that tells both our personal future as well as our world's future. And so I invite you to just keep right there in the moments to come. When we think about worship, worship happens when we give attention to the Lord, who is the one who's ruling over us, who reigns over us. He's the one who's rescued us. See, Christians worship with the conviction that we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again because that's so important. Christians worship because we're in the conviction that we're in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so today, for the next few moments, I want to just sort of orient you. I want to orient you to a world that's very different. The passage that was read had the word throne numerous times. In fact, the book of Revelation uses that word lots and lots of times. Now, if you and I were to start school here this upcoming week or more, we'd have perhaps a freshman orientation. If you and I were to begin a new job, we would have maybe a day or an hour of orientation. And certainly if we're going to understand this book and the scene that was written for us to encourage us and to strike a chord within us of worship, then we're going to need orientation. So let me help you today But what I'm calling your orientation to the throne. Your orientation to the throne. This is a scene from something that's very different as it pictures for us. And I want you to notice it's showing us something that's eternal. Now, everything that you're familiar with in this world is transitory. But this is eternal. You can think of what we, you and I, interact with as quicksand, but that is bedrock. It is called to sweep us into something that's bigger by far than us. In fact, when we begin to think about this, not many things that we're involved with are eternal. Your career accomplishments are not eternal. Your high school degree, your college degree, not eternal. Your wealth, 
is not eternal. Your marriage should last a lifetime, but your marriage is not eternal. One thing that you do is eternal, worship. Worship is something that we're practicing here. God wants you to get better and better at it so that when you step across the portal into glory, into the next horizon, if you will, then you will have developed your practice as well. Because worship of the one on the throne is eternal. There's two words that I would use to describe what was just read for us. The first word that I would use is the word intense. Now, to get the level of intensity, I would say it this way. If you and I were in Oklahoma, on the plains of Oklahoma, and we had news that an F5 tornado were bearing down on our trailer park, that'd be intense, wouldn't it? The 24 living creatures, the elders, it's that intense. It's as intense, the scene we just read, as the Situation Room on the eve of the Bay of Pigs during the Kennedy administration. It is intense as the meetings in the Oval Office shortly after the fall of the towers on 9-11. Yes, it is that intense. Everything that's happening here, the 24 elders, each holding a heart, the, the four living creatures, each taking their turn to play, there's an intensity. It pulsates with every fiber and every molecule of their being. The second word I would just describe to help you orient you to what's happening here is only intense, but there's an instinctuality to what's happening. An instinctuality. What do I mean by that? When you look at the four living creatures, when you look at the 24 elders, what you see is an instinctual act of worship. They instinctually fall down at the end of the chapter. They instinctually, that is almost impulsively, they grab a harp and they play. There's no one begging or conjoling them as if you're trying to get a child up in the morning on a Monday to get to school. No one has said, I forgot my harp, or I don't feel like playing, I don't feel like singing, I don't feel like worshiping. Everything about this is instinctual. It's, it's boggling to the mind because if you pay attention to the story that was just read, which portrays to be nothing less than the absolute truth of God, there's three layers as a progressive action to it. Now imagine if later today we had the ability to go to the Texas Rangers baseball game and you would see the wave happening all across the new ballpark. A similar thing is in one sense happening here. Let me show you the progressive nature, the intensity, the instinctualness of it. Beginning in verse 9, you'll notice the 24 elders and the four living creatures sing one song of worship. But a second layer of worship is added to their first layer. Look in verse 11, where the 24 elders, again, and the four living creatures, yes, are joined by myriad of myriad of angels. A countless number of angels are joining with them. But then a third layer happens. Yes, the four living creatures. Yes, the 24 elders. Yes, the countless numbers of angels. But now added to that is every creature under the sea and every creature on the land. Pastor, do you mean to tell me that the Bible is telling me that the creatures under the sea will sing and join in a song of praise? Well, I need not remind you, do I, that when Jesus came in on that Palm Sunday, and the enemy said, you need to get those people to shut their mouth and praising you. He said, if they don't sing my praise, what? Then the rocks will cry out. 
And so we need to be aware that there's this progressive nature, a wave, if you will, a wave, a wave, and it's all instinctual. There's no one getting up before them and directing them, and yet there's a power and there's an order to it. I think one of the best things you can do in reading the book of Revelation is let your imagination run, to bring your nose and your eyes into it and to have them run wild with imagination. Picture with me a billion cotton bowls. I said a billion with a B. And every cotton bowl is filled with angels singing and praising as far as the eye can see. Picture with me, do they sing an antiphony? Does the first billion angels sing his praise only to pause and wait? Or the second billion angels respond back about his worth and the wealth and the glory of his name? And then if you would just bring your mind's eye and imagination like a drone and picture city upon city of people coming out of their homes, looking to the heavens, their voices at full throat, singing his praise. As if that's not enough, picture state by state. And as if that's not enough, picture continent by continent. Every single human being declaring his worth declaring his glory, declaring how great he is. Yes, this is an instinctual scene. This is an intense scene, everything about it. Someone might ask, how long does this take? And the answer is nobody knows. We have no idea how long it takes. No one has a stopwatch out. And the truth is no one cares how long it takes. The best movie, the best story, the best sporting event, the best thrill that you've ever experienced pales in comparison. You lose track of time. And everyone here is pictured with full zeal for the Lord. There's full enthusiasm. The 24 elders that have their harps out, it's not that some elder says, I forgot my harp today. Can I borrow yours? Or I just don't feel... Everyone is fully passionate about the Lord. In fact, the words all in would describe this. They're all in you know what my hope would be for you right now no matter how young you are no matter your marital status who no matter who you're going to vote for this is November my hope for you right now would be to say wow wow that my feeble words and my feeble imagination would have painted the intensity the electric nature to all that's happening there by the way if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, and if you've been born again through the blood of Jesus and the cross, this is your future. This is your future. If you're taken out by COVID, if you're taken out by a train, if you're taken out by old age or dementia, this is your future. There's a hope, there's a powerful hope for everyone in Christ. I just want to give just a moment or two to orient you to the throne, that you could be practicing your praise and your wows now so that you'd be fully in sync then the second thing i want you to see is i want to have your attention to the throne i want your attention to be to this throne because the throne itself is not given a lot of description here in chapter five in fact the story picks up earlier in chapter four you could read all of that this afternoon there's no football games on so go ahead and just take time to read the bible 
And just imagine all that's happening. So how would I picture this? Well, in chapter 4, it begins by describing this. At once, John says, he's the one who writes this, John. At once I was in the Spirit. And he says, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. In fact, in chapter 5, all that's described about the throne is at the right hand there's a scroll. To give us greater picture, over in verse 5 of chapter 4, we get this picture of flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. The last time my memory recalls this happening was at Mount Sinai when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, the chapter earlier in chapter 19, we're told that no one could approach the mountain because of the greatness of God. This is a majestic, powerful throne. You need to realize, you need to feel with all of your worth that there is a throne today in heaven ruling anyone and everything. There are no real competitors to this throne. You need to have the faith and the confidence today that there is one on the throne who will pulverize. I did not say beat back. I said pulverize all that is wicked and all that is evil. The one on the throne is issuing mercy on this day by virtue of the cross of Jesus Christ. And his mercy is a flood of mercy. To get a picture of the throne and the weight of it and the authority of it, I want to remind you of the last words that Jesus said before leaving the earth is all authority has been given to me. He didn't say I share authority with the Oval Office. He said all authority has been given to me. So to get a picture of the weight and the authority and the majestic nature of this throne, maybe it would help you to know that the White House, the Oval Office, is but a janitor's closet to this throne. Maybe it would help you to know that if you think This throne in comparison to the Kremlin, the Kremlin is a dumpster fire compared to this throne. If that doesn't help you enough, maybe it would help you to know that the Pentagon is nothing more than a Bumpkin County Sheriff's Office someplace, a would-be star, if you will, on a law enforcement who pretends to be more than he is. This is the weight of this throne. I want you to feel that there's a throne today. I want you to feel that there's one on the throne. I want you to know that there's one who's ruling with authority. Now, there's two specific reasons in chapter 5. There's one in chapter 4, we'll get to that some other day, but two in chapter 5 that call our attention to why my voice should praise the one on the throne. The first, the Bible says, is that he is worthy because he's in control. The beginning of the chapter begins to speak about a scroll, an unnamed scroll that has seals. In fact, in verse 9, a central verse in chapter 5, the 24 living creatures, the four elders, the myriad of angels, all of them are saying, you are worthy. He is worthy because you can take the scroll and open the seals. Let's pause there for a moment. Let's feel the worth of that. What is that scroll? Well, I would say that the scroll is the most important document ever written. Yes, I'm grateful for the Declaration of Independence. Yes, I'm thankful for the Constitution. But they pale in comparison to the document in the right hand of the one of the throne. Why do we think that this is such an important book, such an important scroll? Well, if we were to continue reading the book of Revelation, we would find this. In chapter 9, the appointed plan of God happens because the scroll is open. 
So we would say it this way, if the scroll were not open, God's appointed plan were not to take place. Or we could say this, if the scroll were not open, the wicked would not be judged over in chapter 16 of Revelation. How important is this scroll? If the scroll were not open, Jesus could not or would not come back in chapter 19. How important is this scroll? If the scroll were not open, then we do not walk on streets of gold and enter through gates of pearl, and God does not reign in glory in the new heavens and the earth because the scroll, all of that is contained. Everything is unpacked, unfurled from this scroll. We might say it this way. In short, if the scroll isn't open, then the Bible's promises are not true and hope itself is defeated. Therefore, John weeps. Something about the story as we get in the text cannot convey the emotion. John weeps. There's a search that goes on. Angels are sent out. The Bible says they are mighty. They have the speed of a hummingbird. They have a swooping ability of an eagle. An eagle-like angel is sent out. And first he begins to search all over earth to find one who's worthy to open the scroll. Imagine if you're that day and the angel looks at you and says, are you worthy? What about you? Are you worthy? How about you? Are you worthy to open the scroll one by one and searching? No president was found who was worthy to open the scroll. No preacher, no priest, no sage was worthy to open the scroll. No artist had the ability to open that scroll. No colonel, no general, no matter how many stars or how many stripes or how many bars was worthy to open the scroll. They looked all over the earth and not one single person on the earth had the ability, had the worth open the contents of a scroll that contained the future's plan. In fact, not only did they search all over the earth, the angel then went and searched all over heaven. In fact, it was Michael the guardian angel was there, but he dared not open his lips. He kept silent. They went to Gabriel in his trumpet, but he could not say a word. The prophet Isaiah, the one who said, here am I, send me. But Isaiah had the God-given enough good enough sense to shut his mouth because he wasn't worthy to open the scroll. Peter, in searching heaven, God knows Peter would say something before he thought. Peter had the good sense to keep his mouth shut. James and John's, remember their mama? They said, hey, can my boys sit beside the throne? They kept their mouth shut. Everyone on earth, everyone in heaven, there was no one to be found. Look at John, the revelator. He's weeping. There's only one hand worthy of taking the scroll out of the right hand of the one on the throne. It's identified in chapter 5 as the one who's both lion and lamb. He is a lamb because he's a sacrificial one on the cross. He's lion because no one dare threaten his authority and his reign. You and I are to praise this one because he is in control. He will not be on the ballot box the 3rd of November. He has no party organizer to drum up support. He has no week-long party to center attention, and all the networks will ignore him. And yet, you and I are called today to bring all the honor and the glory and the praise to this one because he is in complete control. There's a second reason you're to bring praise. There's a second reason you're to bring worship and honor. 
Worship is the word to describe worth, and it's the cause of Calvary. Again, in verse 9, we find the focus here. Both of these reasons are in verse 9. The first of which was in control, but the second of which, worthy are you because for you were slain. This could not be said of the one on the throne, but this could be said of the one who takes the scroll from the one on the throne. This is Jesus. And it's by his blood, by your blood, you ransom people for God. You know, I think about that picture from time to time. I let my imagination go there, and I think about there's a day, Scott, when you will be there. You'll be on your knees, and your head will be on the floor, and you'll be surrounded by all these people praising God. And then I think, because I'm a curious person, I'm just going to sneak a peek. I'm just going to raise, I'm just going to look up there, and everybody else is down, and look around, and I'm going to be surprised. I'm going to look over there, and I'm going to see you. And I go, gosh, I didn't think they'd make it. Surprised <laughs> to see them there. And you'll think that too. And then somebody's going to look at you and say, I can't believe you made it. <laughs> but among the people I anticipate seeing that day, I don't know for sure, but I just have an opinion, is a man named Barabbas. He's a real man. He's a man that is in the story of Jesus. Barabbas owes his fate really everything to a man named Pontius Pilate who was the ruling governor, if you will. See, Pilate had came forward at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus and Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but Pilate needed political approval. He had a mess on his hands in the city of Jerusalem. And so he came up with a tradition. In fact, he continued a tradition. The tradition was to give a presidential pardon, the ancient version of a presidential pardon and he said here's what i'm going to do i'm going to let you either have jesus or barabbas now barabbas was a notorious thief he had every reason to be in prison i imagine barabbas as the story is told he was listening to the trial of jesus he could hear them shout crucify him crucify him and they he thought they were speaking of him I imagine him rubbing his palms or rubbing his wrists, but minutes before the crucifixion. When those Roman soldiers, you could hear them coming before you could see them, wouldn't you imagine? As they brought their weight and opened up the cell gate, they said, you are free. See, Pontius Pilate's plan backfired on him. He thought the people would choose Jesus, but they were riled up by the enemies, and they chose Barabbas. I bet Barabbas... I bet he got out of that prison cell like a covey of quail when a shotgun went off. Wouldn't you imagine? I bet he had a thousand questions. I bet he wanted to say to those guys, are you sure? But he didn't ask any questions. I do imagine that Barabbas on the outskirts of the city turned his focus back to Golgotha. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to see the one who took your place? Wouldn't you want to see the pageantry and all the immoral justice that was happening? And I think when they lifted Jesus Christ up six feet above the earth on that criminal's cross, and they drove those nails into Jesus' hands, you don't have to be too intellectual to pick up on what Barabbas was thinking. Barabbas was saying, Those are my nails. 
That's my punishment. That's my death. I know you've gotten up and come to church and you got cleaned up, and I appreciate that, but I'm about to insult you. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. And if you want to understand anything about Jesus, you've got to come to the conclusion that Barabbas did. That's my death. That is my punishment. Those are my nails. I think on the day in which we bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, among the multitudes of people, alongside priests and preachers and senators and common people, will be a felon, a thief, a man named Barabbas. And I think that his voice will be one of the loudest voices there. He's going to say among the people, you are worthy. You are worthy because of Calvary. You were slain. I want you to notice one more thing about verse 9. I want to just burn verse 9 in your mind for just a moment. Because the Bible speaks about something that's really intriguing. The Bible says here, Worthy are you to take the scroll, worthy are you because of Calvary, and by your blood you ransom people for God, Look at these next words, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Did you see those words? There are more than 7,100 spoken languages in the globe today. The five most common languages include English, Mandarin, Chinese, French, Spanish, as well as Hindi. I find it intriguing that among the reasons Jesus is worshipped is because he's worshipped by this diversity of people. Now, I want you to take everything that you learned about diversity from the Human Relations Department, everything about diversity that's said on the news, and I want you to put it to the side because this is genuine, this is real. Imagine if you would this. If you get to heaven and Jesus is praised by one group of people, Brits, or Spaniards, or Americans. What would that say about the nature and the worth of Jesus? If he were just the God of one group of people, if you were to sneak that peek over the multitude of people and all you'd see is white people or brown people. But imagine this. Imagine on that day you're among a people as you sneak that peak and look up over the horizon to a countless number of people, and there you see not just one group, but you see Brazilians and you see Brits. You see Uzbeks and you see Ugandans. You see Vietnamese and you see Venezuelans. You see Thai and you see Turks. You see Koreans and you see Kuwaitis. The CIA recognizes more than 200 nations on its websites. And God is telling you in the pages of Scripture that he's still designed everything in the world that every nation, every people group, every language, the cross was designed to ransom and rescue red and yellow, black and white, and everything in between. What would that say about that God? You see, if God, the God of the Bible, 
is just the God of the Jewish people, if he's just the God of this century, of us, of just what we look like, well, if he can only win a few tribes and a few races, then he's just an okay God. But if God is a God who can win from every tribe of every race, of every century, of every continent, well, he's far more than an okay God. Let me give you one of the most important sentences I've ever come across. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you going to show up on that day, just you and yours? Or will you arrive on that day and your voice and your lips and your mind will have spent a week or a year or a decade learning a language and communicating the good news that Jesus died so that another tribe of people could be introduced to the good news. Didn't somebody tell you about Jesus? Didn't your mama or your daddy or your vacation Bible school teacher, your preacher, didn't your neighbor, your coworker, didn't somebody tell you about Jesus? And you just so happened to be born in Texas or North America. Can I get an amen on that? You had strong gospel access. You had the opportunity to be at a place where there's so many Bibles, people toss them aside. But what if you existed in a place where there was no Bible and there was no church and there was no Christians? Wouldn't you want some Christian to get up out of their comfort zone and communicate the good news, take a week of their 2021, take a month, take a decade, take a lifetime? When he came, he would sit right here at 930 in this section. Ray passed away about two Thursdays ago. Ray and his wife, Elaine, she may be here today in one of our services. We had his service this past Thursday. His three kids were there, captain in the army among the three. And I looked at that family like I look at hundreds of families, and I said, your dad, Ray, spent his lifetime doing the right thing. Ray spent his decades of his 20s and his 30s in Brazil. So the Brazilian people who speak Portuguese would be at this throne and be on their knees so that they could say hallelujah in Portuguese. And he went as far as 31 different places to train pastors, communicating to people in Madagascar and places where the gospel is illegal. Ray stepped across the portal two Thursdays ago. You know what he did? If the Bible is true and Jesus is real, and he began to receive thank yous in languages that were not native of his own. He was just an Okie, just a plain old Oklahoma boy. But he took the Bible seriously. Missions exist because worship doesn't. I'm talking to hundreds of Christians online and in person today. What are you doing with your life that's eternal? Your wealth isn't eternal. Your high school education isn't eternal. 
Your patriotism is eternal, but your worship is eternal. Why don't we join together, you and me? Why don't we come together? Why don't we practice our worship now so that we're decent to good at it when we get there? And then why don't we take the right arm and the left arm and take as many as Democrats and Republicans and felons and white and black and red and yellow and Brits and everything in between and say, why don't you join me in this place? Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.